Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the Grand Rounds Lecture. I'd also like to welcome everybody who's watching remotely. Um, I'm just going to start by reading the COI statement. David does have financial interests um, as a consultant for Q Biologics. However, Alan Hartford has reported that the relationship with industry has been resolved um, by validating the content of this presentation through peer review. David does, in, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity. With respect to this activity, for CME credit, please use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. That's all the business I have. So it's, it's a real pleasure for me to introduce uh, Dr. Dr. David Mullins, who is an associate professor of medical education and of microbiology and immunology, and he's also a member of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, the Immunology and Cancer Immunotherapy Program. So, um, oh, and I want to add, David is also the chair of the Geisel Academy of Master Educators. Um, I've known David for a long time. Um, so I, I met David probably about 10 years ago at a Keystone meeting, and that started our relationship because our research is so, so closely um, um, related. And we were very fortunate to, and I was part of the recruitment that brought David here to Dartmouth in 2011. At the time, he was at the University of Virginia as an assistant professor in their Department of Immunology. David actually is a Virginia native and um, grew up and did all of his training there until being extracted to the uh, uh, northern New, uh, New England. You married, in, that's right, I forgot about Irene's connection to the area. Um, so it's, I got really excited because as I was putting David's introduction together this morning, um, I got an email from Greg Ogrens who announced it, announced that effective today, David was appointed as Geisel's Associate Dean for Basic Science Integration. Congratulations, David. Um, so I just want to say an excerpt from, from Greg's email on that. Um, in this new leadership position, David's key responsibility will be to work collaboratively with Geisel faculty to integrate basic biomedical sciences across all four years of the undergraduate medical education curriculum. So that sounds really uh, exciting. So, um, so, but we're here today to hear about David's research in cancer immunology. Um, I'm, I always love to hear David's talks and um, David has done such seminal work over the years in terms of T-cell responses and now innate immune responses to cancer. I still always look for opportunities to cite his earliest work, which really set up a lot of what we understand about how T-cells move around and move into tumors. Um, and um, David's always innovating new vaccines and immunotherapy. And um, that's what, what I believe he's going to talk to us about today. So thank you so much, David. So, okay, this is on. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, there we go. There. Okay. Really appreciate you being here. Um, so, let me tell you a little bit about myself. As Barry just said, I came here 2011, um, a couple of years ago, when Geisel did a reorganization. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to transition my primary appointment 
the sad part was to leave a primary appointment in micro. The happy part was to move to a primary appointment in medical education, but I kept my secondary in micro. And um, unfortunately, I spend more of my time on the other campus. I think our mic must be on here, sorry. Nope. I spend most of my time on the other campus with the, with the medical students, which is very fortunate for me, and I hope they, I'll pay them if they say it's fortunate for them. Um, it's unfortunate for research, um, and we're trying to sort of straddle that, and part of why I'm here today is to show you some of what we've been doing in collaboration with a Vancouver-based biotech. Um, I think we're helping them further their science by putting an academic spin on it, but hopefully coming up with some novel and interesting medical, uh, you know, biomedical observations that we can now try to spin. Yeah. I just need to see your microphone. It's not coming over. The Hello. Nope. Hello? How's that? Can you hear me in the back? All right. Thank you. All right. So uh, part of why I'm here today is to show you some of what we're doing and hopefully get your feedback as we try to reinvigorate the research program and, and put some things forward for grants. So Mary Jo mentioned I do have financial interest in, in a company called Q Biologics, for which I am a consultant, and they have provided grant research funding. Alan's cleared us to talk about it. <clears throat> no off-label investigational, no direct payments. So what I want to talk to you about is this idea that we, we hopefully can use bacteria in, a, in an interesting and novel way to simulate immunity. And if that sounds new to you, you haven't been following cancer immunology very closely, right? Because that's been going on for a long time. And, and, and it kind of comes and goes. And one of the stories we always talk about in the medical school, we teach over in the lecture auditorium, it's got this big picture of the first clinical x-ray. You know, one of the first deficits in cancer immunology was it was starting, starting to get some traction, and that damn x-ray came along, and people was like, oh, that will cure everything. Radiation can cure everything. Who needs to study cancer immunology anymore? And it went into a period of darkness. It didn't come out until the 60s, and, and it kind of went up and down. And I remember as a graduate student talking about suppressor T-cells and suppressor macrophages and being booed off the stage. And now suppressor T-cells have a Nobel Prize behind them. Not, not to me. <laughs> By the way, you know, Mary Jo's famous car, her car car, her, the Tesla, you know, my famous car is my 2003 red Volvo because there have been two Nobel laureates in the front seat of that car, Jim Allison and um, Ralph Steinman, and I keep, every day I ride to work and I rub that seat, and I, th I know someday it will pay off. Okay. So... So we're going to look at some innate responses, and I spent my whole career trying to get away from innate and do adaptive, and now I've, the science has brought me back to innate, because we've had some interesting observations about what bacteria, and in, in, in fact, what I'm going to talk with you about mostly is killed bacteria, <coughs> and how we can potentially use that for immune therapy. So you know this guy, William Cole, you've heard this many times, but he was in New York, and he's treating patients, and he kind of figured out this idea to use what he called Coley's toxins, which was serratia marcescens and some other bugs. And, and, and he did this because he observed in patients with sarcoma that had become open lesions, cutaneous lesions. And the patients in this era, in the late 1800s, they weren't dying from the sarcoma. They were dying from sepsis because the lesions became infected. 
and they didn't have antibiotics. So well, but, but he noticed in a small subset of the patients that actually when the lesion, when the, the open sarcoma became infected, it actually started to regress a little. And he became bold enough to say, I'm actually going to create bacterial toxins. He hypothesized quite erroneously that the bacteria and the cancer may be competing for you as a host. So the bacteria may be killing the cancer. Turns out that wasn't quite right, but that's okay. Um, so what's the problem with Coley's toxins? He, he gave them to patients, and we, we still do this kind of today in a sense. You know, we still give BCG. We use cancer immune therapies. Oh, he's come back. Uh -oh. In my case, it's more like a penny. That's okay. I would yell, and they could probably still hear me in Keen, but... But then I'd get another phone call from Mr. Rizzo downstairs, and he... Okay. Yes. Dinner and a show, I heard. So, so, you know, the problem, of course, is Coley cured some patients and he killed some patients. You know, that doesn't go over well. And, and you imagine getting that through the uh, subjects today. So bacteria kind of died out for a little bit as a therapy until what we started to figure out was why it works. And why it works had little in most cases, little to do directly with the bacteria and more to do with the immune response you were having to the bacteria and the effect it was having on the tumor. And so, you know, here's an example from a couple of years ago now, but Mary Jo, Steve, myself, uh, Barb Fox, Dave Bizzik, people here who worked on using bacterial and pathogenic approaches to treat cancer. So a number of approaches have been used with, with different effects. Um, and, and today we still have a number going on, Pseudomonas aeruginosa enhances immunity for small cell cancer, Klebsiella is used in cervical carcinoma, and so on. The, the commonality of these things is in most cases, the bacteria are doing something to modulate the immune response in some way that you get a little bit of better anti-cancer effect. You know, what's come out recently that dampened the excitement was the idea that actually a lot of infections are, are associated with chronic inflammation that causes cancer, so that dampened the excitement in the field again. So we sort of started thinking, um, based on work I had done as a postdoc that I'm not going to show you, where we saw regional and site-specific immunity, in other words, immunity in the lung. Now, Mary Jo's run with this and, and done great stuff to show tissue resident memory. We were looking at it early on, didn't know that that's what it was called, but the idea that if you have an immune response in, in a particular organ, you will lay down a resident immune response in that organ. And evolutionarily, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you're sitting on a plane and you get hacked on by the guy next to you and you pick up a virus, it's going to infect your lungs. The next time you see that pathogen, where's it going to infect you? In the lungs. Okay? It, it, it may, evolutionarily makes sense to have this regionality to the immune response. Well, it turns out it probably happens with bacteria, too. So we started thinking about, I'll skip over it, we started thinking about this idea and looking at what was coming up in the literature. And I love this. This was a study in, in dogs where it turns out osteosarcoma is pretty common in dogs. And the, the typical surgery for that, the typical treatment for that is just you know, take off the limb. But it turns out about 50% of the animals that have that surgery develop postoperative infections. And guess what happens in the animals that develop postoperative infections? That's the dotted line. And the animals that don't develop postoperative infections, that's the solid line. The animals that develop postoperative infections have a much longer disease-free survival with no recurrence of sarcoma. 
And the only difference is they had a post-operative infection. Something happened in that lesion at that time to mod that probably modulated the immune response, and nobody's really mechanistically looked at that. And now it turns out even in patients that's seen in colon cancer, patients who have abdominal infections post-surgery have a greater disease-free survival than patients who don't. So we sort of were running with this idea and thinking, can we use bacteria, and in this case, maybe we could use killed bacteria to stimulate or, or maybe re-stimulate an organ or tissue resident memory response. And at the time when we started this, I, I would have bet, bet the old Volvo that it was adaptive. In fact, I told everybody, this is adaptive, this is so slam dunk, this is going to be CD8, did I tell you it was CD8 T cells? Yeah, Mary Jo's like, yeah. <laughs> I remember, right? It's like, damn CD8 T cells, right? That's all it could be. Could it be reactivated and get organ-specific and targeted killing? So we, we started working with a company out in Vancouver that was doing this. And the idea is, can we do a bacteria-mediated immune response with killed bacteria that will mimic chronic acute infection, but of course not create an infection, and, and in doing so, try to harness the anti-cancer potential of the bacteria-induced immunity. So we tried a, what we thought was a novel approach. Subcutaneous delivery of a product manufactured from Klebsiella. In, in the slides, it might, it's probably termed KB. Uh, and we did this in murine-like models of metastatic cancer. The, uh, the simple idea was, like the dog, if you get the post-operative infection, you get less cancer. If we keep stimulating the immune response with this, these injections of bacteria, would we get less cancer? And we picked, we started with Klebsiella. It's a nice gram negative. It gives nice, big, potent immune responses. And sure enough, in a prophylaxis model, where we use Lewis lung carcinoma, if we did placebo treatment or we treated the mice, and, and the only treatment was, again, subcutaneous injections with killed Klebsiella, we saw a significant reduction in the tumor burden. Here, here's some pictures. You can see the, 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 the lesions here in the placebo. Unfortunately, LLC is not nice and dark like uh, melanoma, but you can kind of see them there. And, and survival, overall survival was, was enhanced. And we published this in, in 2017, but you know, the first time we showed this to people, I think people thought we were crazy. Just tell you right now, right? Christina's up here like, yeah, damn right you're crazy. I want to see the primary data, right? Why? We were injecting sub-Q. We were injecting the bacteria subcutaneously, but we saw an effect in the lung, and we didn't expect to see that, or, or we didn't know if we would see that or not, but we did. And, and so we kept asking what would happen. Let me show you again, it works in B16 melanomas. Well, you can see the nice black B16 lesions, the number of lesions greatly reduced when you have Klebsiella. But here's the really interesting part. If we go to intradermal tumors, and you can inject B16, or you can inject these tumors into the tail vein, they'll go right to the heart, they'll, they'll engraft in the lung. You get these nice metastatic-like models, but you can put them in subcutaneously and get a solid bolus model. The same treatment that had this nice profound effect in the lung didn't do anything in the dermal tumors, even though the bacteria was being injected in subcutaneously. Now, in a mouse, sub-Q is not quite the same as interdermal. It's a little different, but still. Um, and we had published, when I was at UVA, we had published work with dendritic cells. And the work with dendritic cells said, if you target the dendritic cells to the, to the lungs, you'll get really good, profound anti-tumor immunity in the lungs, but not the skin. If you inject the dendritic cells in the skin, you get really profound anti-tumor immunity in the skin, but not the lungs. 
And it's because the CD8 cells that get stimulated are instructed by the dendritic cells to go back to those compartments. It's the zip coding. They're, the, the T cells know, go back to the lungs, go back to the skin, that's where the infection was, and they don't cross over. In fact, I would argue at UVA we vaccinated 700-some patients <laughs> intradermally, subcutaneously. 99% of them had profound responses to the vaccine using a melanoma antigen. None of them had clinical efficacy. Why? The melanoma wasn't in the skin anymore. We were in giving drives to T cells in the skin. So what's going on here? This is a little different. Now the effect is in the lung, even though we're injecting into the skin. So I'll get back, so I'll get back to the mechanism in a minute. Um, we went to a treatment model. In, I should say in the placebo model, we've been pre-injecting with bacteria. Um, and we're injecting every other day for two weeks, and then it works really well. What happens in the treatment model? If we induce the tumor and then we start treatment, the effect is slightly diminished, but it's still there. If we hold treatment off until about day five, again, a diminution in the effect, but you still get statistical significance. So it's suggestive, at least, that it's not just prophylactic, it's therapeutic. And in fact, we did studies that I haven't, don't have a slide in here. We looked at tumor engraftment in the lung. The treatment with the bacteria did not change the initial tumor engraftment in the lung. This was not that the tumor was not able to penetrate the compartment. The, the same number of tumor cells went into the lungs regardless of the treatment. Once they got there, we hypothesized they were being killed. So we started looking at why this works. And we thought, well, if, if it's adaptive, which I still thought it was adaptive, of course. If it's adaptive, what's the hallmark of adaptive? You get memory. And Klebsiella is everywhere. You've all, probably everybody in the room's had a Klebsiella pneumonia at one time or another. Maybe it didn't become clinically relevant, but you've all had it. You probably all have immunity to it, and certainly the mice have it. So we kind of thought, well, maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of prior exposure. So we were able to source mice from a Klebsiella-free environment. Now, these were not bacteria-free mice. These were simply mice where Klebsiella was not in the colony. They had never been exposed to Klebsiella. And we could intentionally infect them or not with Klebsiella. And then see, look at reactivation using either a control or killed Klebsiella or killed E. coli as a comparator and then wait 10 days and challenge them with B16 and, and see what happens. And it turns out when we did this, we saw something really interesting. If the colony, the colony had Klebsiella and we treat the mice with killed Klebsiella, we greatly reduce the tumor burden. But if the colony did not have Klebsiella, if the mice had no known prior exposure to Klebsiella, the killed Klebsiella did not affect the tumor outgrowth, suggesting that we were reactivating some memory response with the killed bacteria. And really interesting because we're reactivating a response in the lungs with a sub-Q injection. Now we go and we take the mice that had never seen Klebsiella, we intentionally infect them, rest them. We did PCR studies to, to confirm. The mice had no residual Klebsiella. They had, they had cleared it, rest them. Now the killed, the killed bacteria works again. The killed bacteria reduces the tumor burden. So we felt that was pretty convincing evidence that the anti-cancer effect we saw was some type of a memory response and required prior exposure to the pathogen. And it turns out in mice, where was the exposure to the pathogen? It was in the lungs, in the lung. If we 
We did, <clears throat> we did this with mismatched. If we did a Klebsiella infection and, and a different kill bacteria, it didn't work. And, you know, I always, I, Mary Jo knows this very well. And when, when I was at UVA, I remember one of my students came upstairs and said, yeah, I gave all these mice some dendritic cells. And, you know, I, I, told them, I told the mouse people to sack them. I said, why? She said, they're all turning white. <laughs> well, okay, I guess you have to be a cancer immunologist to get that joke, don't you? <laughs> Sorry. Because <clears throat> the mice were getting vitiligo, which is the great readout for cancer immunology, but, you know, we didn't realize. You know, and it was like, wow, this is really cool. Well, in this case, turns out I had a lab tech, and he came up one day and he said, you know what, I remember I infected those mice with Klebsiella, and I, I put them on a different shelf and I forgot about them. So I told the mice people, go ahead and sack them. They've been sitting there for six months. And I was, nah. you know, I was like fighting with the poor guy at the elevator to get to the mouse house, you know, no, save my mice. Why? They'd been resting for like six or eight months post-infection, but guess what? It still worked, okay? So it was durable. This is one of those accidental experiments that we love because it, it turned out the response was durable, even if the mice, and now we've rested them for over a year. The response is durable. So, so there's some kind of memory response there that's doing it. It requires exposure to the same pathogen. We went back and did these studies, this time using pre-infection with, with pseudomonas, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm blank, uh, strep pneumonia and blanking off the top of my head, PA. I'll come back to it in a minute. Mismatched, I'm sorry, mismatched bacteria. If we pre-infect them and we treat it with the different bacteria, here, this, this experiment, we got a little bit of effect. If we pre-infect and treat with the same bacteria, we get a very profound effect, okay? Same thing here. Treatment and, I'm sorry, exposure to and treatment with matched bacteria, mismatched bacteria, no effect, little effect. So it really led us to think this must be a memory response and it's consistent with this reactivation of a memory response. We're doing this. I've been a CD8 guy all my postdoc. I'm, I'm at that point living next door to Mary Jo, the CD8 person. And I'm thinking, this has got to be tissue resident memory. It's going to be CD8 cells, right? You know, and then you get blown out of the water. <laughs> because you do the experiment in a rag knockout, and it works. <laughs> right? What's that saying about data ruins a beautiful hypothesis, right? <laughs> And let me tell you, I, was, I, I had the lab tech do this one like six times. He's like, <laughs> I was like, more rags. More rags. You know, so, and it worked every damn time. So, and our collaborators out in Vancouver, they took, they, 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 we did that one here. They did this one. They did anti-CD25. They did anti-CD4. Didn't matter. The, the experiment, the, the efficacy remained even with ablating those subsets. And so, you know, so what could it be? And so we started looking at a lot of things. And I'm not going to go through this one. This is a, this is a principal component analysis where we saw the, the, the Klebsiella treatment lit up things that seemed to be more with innate immunity. And we certainly saw more NK cells and more macrophages. And we saw an M1 skewing in the compartment. And that led us to say, wow, this must be more in the innate side than the adaptive side. We can completely get rid of the CD8 cells. And, and it, you know, and it's interesting because if you, if you think here, the RAG knockout, I mean, they never had the T cells, and the response came in. So there was, it's not just that the T cells weren't the effector. They weren't necessary for the induction or anything. So we started looking a little bit more at, at the innate system. It turns out it's independent of my D88. <clears throat> um, 
If we do the B16, melan or B16 melanoma, killed Klebsiella, it works. Put this in a MyD88 knockout, we get a little bit more tumor burden, probably not surprisingly in the MyD88 knockout, but you know, there's the killed Klebsiella still working pretty well. And that's thought, well, maybe it's not macrophages. So what could it be? So we finally came to the idea of NK cells. And so it turns out if we ablated NK cells, and I know I went kicking and screaming, it's like no NK cells, you know, I don't know why, it's just I didn't want it, right? And, and yet you do the experiment and there it was. So we knock them out, we ablate them. Now what happened, if we, if we ablate the NK cells, you get a lot more tumor engraftment. So you've got to kind of take it with the grain of salt. You get a lot more tumor engraftment if you ablate the NK cells, and that's pretty well known in the literature that that happens. But you're going from placebo with a fair number of tumors to treated with a modest number of tumors. But if I do the NK ablation minus the one outlier here, if I do the NK ablation now, I, I ablate the effect of the bacteria. The bacteria don't have any effect. And it looks like it's through NK cells. It turns out that when we treat with the, Kleb, the killed Klebsiella in the lung compartment, we see an upregulation of at least expression of some NK-associated effector molecules. Granzyme B goes up. We see more perforin. And interestingly, we actually see that NKG2D may be a major player here because if we do this, and this is, I've shown you versions of this experiment multiple times, placebo bacteria, the bacteria dramatically reduces. And in this case, we're looking using a, a gene readout, gene expression readout go into NKG2D knockouts and you ablate the response. So, the, so it's all suggested that NK cells might be a major player in this, in this system. So, so that's where we are with that project. Um, we've worked with this company for a couple of years and we're kind of at this idea that it's at least suggestive to us that there's a memory population of, there's a population of NK cells that somehow have a memory-like activity. And again, I think five years ago, if I'd said that, people would have thought I was insane, and maybe some of you still do. That's okay. Um, there is growing literature on NK memory. And so what we're really wondering at this point is, how is this happening? Why is this happening? How are we injecting subcutaneously and reactivating memory in a different compartment? Data I won't show you. We do know that when we inject the killed bacteria, they do very quickly from the subcutaneous compartment go into circulation and distribute. And we can find fluorescently labeled bacterial fragments in the lungs. It may be the bacteria are going there. It may be the bacteria are releasing a cytokine storm. But still, we don't know. But that's going to be the focus of, of our ongoing work is trying to understand more, at least one phase of it, trying to understand more about this NK response. <laughs> one thing, I'll show you a slight aside I'll show you. This is data that we generated and published um, uh, 2017, a little over a year ago. Matt Alexander in our lab. Matt did a similar type experiment, but he was using beta-glucan. Beta-glucan is a well-known uh, uh, immune modulator, and in this case, the beta-glucan was coming from yeast, so it's not just bacteria. It works, it works very well with the beta-glucan, and we saw similar results. Um, <clears throat> Uh, here's the tumor, here's the beta-glucan, dramatically reduced it. When we did a PCR and looked, we know the engraftment was the same. And it turns out that here's the full change with tyrosinase. So you're looking at relative number of tumors and the relative tumors. 
So it's not just bacteria, we think. And we haven't done this yet with NK cells, but that's what we hope to do. We'll, we'll pursue this along and see. But this idea that there may be a number of different bacterial or, I'm sorry, pathogenic markers that lay down a memory response in the compartment where that infection has occurred. What I didn't show you up here, but I will tell you, is in every one of the studies where I showed you Klebsiella, and the Klebsiella worked, in parallel we used E. coli, and the E. coli never worked. So now we've flipped it over and done an interperitoneal tumor model, and guess what? The E. coli works, but the Klebsiella doesn't. We're a little perplexed by that in the sense that Klebsiella can infect the gut. Um, the company, uh, our collaborators at the company have actually done experiments where we've looked at solid tumors and found um, um, staph can greatly diminish the solid tumors, and the Klebsiella doesn't. So we do really think this hypothesis that there's a tissue or organ-specific regionality to the memory is probably something that's going to bear out. So I, I, I went down the rabbit hole of an eight, and I love it, and it worked, and we're going to pursue that and all that. But I couldn't let go of adaptive. So I just couldn't, you know, because my lab had worked on it for a long time. So we flipped the question around. I, I remember I went to a conference one time. I don't think it was the one we met, but I went to a conference, and um, Josh Fiedler was there, and he was, he was introducing you know, Steve Rosenberg, and he talks about Steve Rosenberg, and Steve Rosenberg gets up and he tells him, I, this is the model I use, this is the model I use, and Josh says, why in hell did you use that model? And Steve's like, because it worked. It showed what I wanted to show, right? You know, why would I pick a model that didn't show what I want to show? So I turned the question around, picked a model, said, well, Maybe the adaptive is not what's driving the initial, but if I'm, a, if I'm simulating the innate, I bet it has downstream effects on the adaptive. And sure enough, my lab had worked on this for some time. Ellie Clancy Thompson, who it's hard to believe Ellie's been gone for a couple of years. Um, she went down to Dana-Farber. Um, we had worked on this for a long time, but got this really nice story to show that if you challenge animals, if you look at um, the number of infiltrating cells and tumors, of mice that are challenged with B16 melanoma in the lung, that early on you get a lot of cells, but over time the tumor starts to eliminate and, and get rid of the cells. And in, and in large part it's because as the tumor grows and expands, it becomes more immunosuppressive. And one thing that happens is it stops making interferon. It stops making interferon-induced chemokines like CXCL10, and it turns out CXCL10 is what draws the T cells in to the tumor. As I said, we published this a few years ago. If we look at infiltration of the lungs with adoptively transferred PML, tumor antigen-specific T cells, a day three tumor, a three-day-old tumor, the T cells go right in. But a, but a 10 or a 20-day-old tumor, they don't. They get excluded, or at least not chemo-attracted. And this is reliant on CXCR3. The T cells have to have CXCR3 if you get rid of it. They go in, but not nearly as well. So, so, so what happens, what, what might happen if we look down here, because I would argue the patients that you guys are treating are more analogous to this than this. I think they're probably pretty immune suppressed. Are the T cells getting in? And so we tried an experiment. We thought, well, what if we take the um, SSI, stands, it's, the, it's the company's designator for the killed bacteria site-specific immunomodulators, their trade name. What if we do tumor and we treat with the, the, the um, have a subcutaneous tumor, and we treat with the SSI, but some days later we actually go back with TCR transgenic T cells and ask 
Well, does it reduce the tumor burden? That's a good question. But more importantly, does it restore the infiltration of the T cells into the tumor? And first of all, it does dramatically reduce the number of surface mets. Busy graph, I know, but here's, here's vehicle. Here's the QBKPN of the Klebsiella. Klebsiella reduces, reduces the surface mets quite a bit. If we adoptively transfer with PML T cells, that reduces the number. But you add T cells and the bacteria together, you get a real significant reduction in the number of tumor mets. So it looks like there's some synergy there. And it turns out when we look at the number of infiltrating TCR transgenic T cells, no tumor, the rest have tumor. Vehicle, you get some T cell infiltration. QBKPN, the Klebsiella treated, dramatically increased. And this is looking at those day 18 tumors. This is looking at those tumors that were pretty recalcitrant to T cell infiltration. If we put anti-CXCR3 antibody into the, into the mouse, nothing, it all goes away. So it suggested to us the bacterial reactivation of the innate memory is giving us a chemokine signature. Now it doesn't, on these graphs, it doesn't look as big as, as I would have hoped, but we certainly do see a statistical significant, statistically significant increase in CXCL9, CXCL10, two chemokines that chemoattract CXCR3 positive T cells. CXCR3 is a marker that's on activated effector cells and memory cells. So it looks like the, the bacteria may be really having two effects. A first phase effect, which is induction of an innate or reactivation of an innate memory in the NK compartment. And a secondary effect, which is creation of a chemokine gradient or restoration of a chemokine gradient that would allow chemoattraction either of nascent T cells from the host or adoptively transferred T cells. Um, this is, and I will tell you right now, we, we are working right now on doing CAR T cells in this model. And we have, we have hopes that, that we'll, we'll see that kind of synergy. So we'd worked with Ena a few years ago and found something interesting. When I was at UVA, we had found that it turned out in many lesions, in many cancer lesions, when you go looking for the chemokine, and we thought it was coming from the vasculature or the innate cells, it was really coming from the tumors. And Ena helped us uh, in our B16 model in the day three lung. If you look at markers for melanoma and CXCL9 and you overlay, the CXCL9 and the CXCL10, the chemokine is coming, it looks like, a lot from the tumor. And so it turns out, this is preliminary data in mouse, uh, Jamie Doss, a medical student, a Geisel medical student who's doing some work in labs, repeated some of this in humans. It turns out if you expose the melanoma cells, either mouse or human, to these bacterial lysates, the melanoma cells themselves start to make chemokines. And they have, the, it, it, it's counterintuitive, but the melanomas actually have toll-like receptors and can respond to killed bacteria to produce chemokine. It works much better if they're pretreated with interferon gamma, but that's not surprising. These are interferon-inducible chemokines, but if we add interferon and the killed bacteria here indicated by SSI, we see a real uptick in the chemokine. So, so it's leading us to a model where we think the bacteria do two things. They upfront reactivate um, an in, probably an NK compartment resident memory that has direct anti-tumor effect. A piece of data um, my collaborators out in Vancouver generated was it turns out when you treat, when the melanomas or Lewis lung carcinomas are exposed to bacteria, they actually upregulate uh, NK ligands. It may make them better targets for NK killing. Um, and we haven't quite worked that out. 
but we think that we have this efficacy. We're working on this idea of site specificity, that what we're really doing is reactivating a resident memory in a compartment of the body where you've had a prior exposure. So clinically, would that matter? Um, not us. The, the collaborator company has, has initiated a phase one trial in patients with resected lung, lung cancer at, at uh, University of British Columbia to look at that issue. Uh, will this work in patients where the patients have pre-existing memory to in uh, Klebsiella? They have been, ex we know they've been exposed. The site specificity hypothesis, we're still working on that one. Why do you see a Klebsiella response in the lungs and not the colon and an E. coli response in the colon and not the lungs? And we're working on that. But it's interesting, I'll tell you um, another thing that uh, Q's doing that I didn't talk about at all because it's not cancer, is using E. coli to treat patients with Crohn's disease. And they have a phase two trial going. The preliminary data that we published with them is the E. coli is quite effective at treating Crohn's disease or Crohn's-like colitis in the mice. And Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, any of these other bacteria are not. It keeps, it's in keeping with the site-specificity hypothesis. And in that case, it's not NK, it's reactivation of macrophage function. The anti-tumor efficacy doesn't seem to require adaptive. NK cells may be the major effectors. Treatment with the killed bacteria may prime for enhanced T cell infiltration. So, a very simple model. If we, if we infect the mouse, uh, do the intranasal infection, we build up uh, an infection in the lungs, we let that rest down, what we end up with in the lung is maybe the, the engraftment of memory. And then subsequently when we inject subcutaneously, parts of that subcutaneous bacteria do repopulate the lung or do interface with the cells reactivate those innate effectors and give either a direct or a bystander effect that leads to tumor rejection. So we think this is, again, important for character. We want to characterize the lung resident memory. We're working more to assess the immunologic role of the lung resident cells and pursuing this idea of using combinatorial therapy of bacteria to prime the compartment and adoptively transfer T cells. So I think I might be under an hour, but that's a first for me. So, so I would be happy to take questions or, or suggestions. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I was just wondering, in your mice that had not experienced Klebsiella, uh, mm -hmm. if they were challenged in the skin and then rechallenged in the skin, would it be in the skin or would it still be in the lung? It's a good question. You know, it's one of those things that's hard to control. Um, when we did the experiment, Brent Irwin helped us do learn to do this um, intratracheal and, and installation to try to really get it in the lung. When you try to do it on the skin, the mouse can get it all over. We can't even guarantee when it went in the lung, it didn't also go into the gut, right? And it's actually Klebsiella can go both places. But, but by PCR, we know it went into the lungs. And so that's really kind of what we focused on. The work we've done with Q that I didn't show you, we've done a number of crisscross studies looking at E. coli in the gut versus the lung or the skin, or Staph aureus, killed Staph aureus that actually has some impact on dermal tumors where the killed E. coli and the killed Klebsiella doesn't. And it's really surprising because the Staph is not that potent. You know, it's, it's gram positive. It doesn't seem to have all that nice TLR activity like the Klebsiella and E. coli, and yet it doesn't do anything. Those negatives don't do anything in the skin where maybe they don't have it. They haven't seen it before. You know, it's 
it's interesting because we don't yet understand why you would lay down memory maybe only in one compartment, or maybe you can lay it down in multiple compartments. We don't know. So if you do the sub-Q injection, mm -hmm. that still can go to the lung? It, it, yeah, it's interesting. If you look at a mouse, a mouse, you know, I, always, I, I like to think of mice kind of like scruffing a dog or a cat. Right, you know, you can't. I, well, maybe I could, but you, most you know, people can't quite do that, right? It's more like what your shirt does, and you get that sub-Q space. And years, years ago, we, when we were using dendritic cells, we found actually subcutaneously injected dendritic cells pretty quickly drained out of the sub-Q space and into the draining node and even the spleen. So they would drop down into the draining node, drop through into circulation, and go all over. That was low numbers, but those were cellular dendritic cells, which are much larger than the bacterial fragments. So we worked with a re the Canadian Research Council. They fluorescently labeled the killed bacteria, injected it, looked for it in different compartments. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how quantitative it was, but what I can say is we found it many places. Okay, it disseminated throughout. It was definitely in the lung. We don't, it wasn't more concentrated. Um, in fact, in fact, you know, it's interesting. The lungs lit up less than other organs, probably because of all the airspace. The, the, the tissue is not as dense. And yet, there was definitely killed bacteria there. Is it necessary for it to go in the lung? We, we don't know. We just don't know. But Dr. Green. Really, really nice data. And, you know, the role of the NK cells is intriguing, and I, I find the completion of blocking in yeah. terms of convincing. That said, I'm wondering if you've tried to replicate this in NSG mice, which, if my memory serves, the lack of the common gamma chain knocks down NK cells as well. Well, to corroborate what you're saying, but maybe to provide a system whereby adoptive transfer, you could put in cells of your choice from knockouts or what have you to pin down the NK cells that are acting as induction. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong from getting No, you're, well, it's, it's actually, I don't have my wallet. Um, we started using, we actually you used, paid me to ask this thank question. you, yes. <laughs> the, we actually, we've been, we've been using, doing some NK work because we wanted to engraft with human tumors. And then we wanted to follow up with human uh, t CAR Ts that are commercially available so it made an easy model to work with. And not surprisingly, actually, we lost efficacy in the, in, in the NSG. What we did not seem to lose in the NSG was a bit of a cytokine flux. Now, the interesting thing about the cytokine flux is if you take the lungs out and you assess the cytokine that's in the lung, you can actually look for mouse and human. And what we saw in the lung was a lot of human cytokine. So it's suggesting that the, the tumors going in, the bacteria must be getting there in some way and triggering or either directly or indirectly, although I would say maybe directly, the melanomas to still, uh, actually in this case, yeah, it wasn't melanoma, but in this case the tumors to still create a chemokine gradient. So we lost the first half but not the second half. And I think that's actually very consistent with a loss of immune function in the NSG mouse, but not a loss in the ability of adoptively transferred T cells. We're not ready for prime time with that, but it's in keeping, yeah. Using wild type and using knockouts for the cytolytic function to pinpoint the yeah. mechanism of protection. So we've 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 considered another a number of things, and you know I, I always think back. I a long time ago a company called and said, "Would you do some studies for us?" 
I said, yeah, and I'll write them up, and I wrote them up, and I said, aim one, aim two, aim three, aim four, and the guy calls me on the phone and says, do aim four. I said, why don't you want aim one, two, and three? And he said, if aim four doesn't work, I don't give a crap about aims one, two, and three, right? <laughs> so who cares about mechanism if it doesn't, right? So when you work with a company, your life, as Steve can attest, when you work with a company, your life sometimes changes a little. So. So we're now, that's, so the kind of thing you're talking about is actually what we do want to pursue academically and what we're trying to write grants on, this idea of, you know, can, and, and, and my question would be on the, on the front end, you know, can you ablate the NK memory and knock out the effect? Can I reconstitute? And it could get tricky. You know, if I, if I take memory NK cells and put them back in a mouse, will they go back to the lung or will they widely distribute? I don't know, right? So we have to do some serious thought experiments on that. But that's actually the academic route we want to go with this, is to focus on that mechanism. Yes, sir? Uh, do patients who have survived bacterial pneumonia, are their survival rates different? I can't, I, I can't address that directly. There's a variety of literature that I've lost track of. Um, it's all retrospective, of course, and correlative, but I, 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 it very well could be. I'm sorry, I can't address your specific case. There's very little known, and you know, there's very little known in patients because it's hard to get those samples. It's hard to get, you know, nobody wants a bronchial lavage, that kind of thing. Um, they're snapshot. Well, if anybody, you know, we pat. No, um, <laughs> I'm in trouble now. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that. I'm just sorry. I just don't know the data on that. Steve, you looked like you were. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by your finding of the response of the tumor cells to the bacteria. Mm -hmm. So if you think back on your mighty 88 knockout mouse, you got a mighty 88 knockout mouse. Yep. But the tumor cells are mighty 88 positive. They are. And it still works, right? Mm -hmm. And then you tell us that you put a, a human tumor. <clears throat> into an NSG, mm -hmm. and you see mostly human cytokines, yep. even though there's plenty of adaptive cells, or innate cells, mm -hmm. that should be recognizing the bacteria. So do you think that there's something about tumors that they inherently are quite responsive to, like, PLR agonists? We published, when I was, when I was, had a foot out the door at UVA, we had just published on interferon responsiveness of melanoma to, to secrete these chemokines and published it in <clears throat> Journal of Immunotherapy that, that you could, in fact, trigger melanomas with interferon, and we therefore did an interferon injection trial, right? Um, my collaborators there went on with that work, fortunately, and did a, an assessment over a number of melanoma lines derived from patients with a number, an array of different TLR agonists and found that not all, but many of them dramatically enhanced the melanoma production of these chemokines. We've gone on and seen it in other cell types as well. And it's interesting because why do, why do tumors express TLR ligands? Why do they express cancer testis antigens? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a random issue or... or or not. Jamie's done some work in the lab and actually found some lines treating them with interferon and killed Klebsiella. Did you use killed E. coli or just the killed Klebsiella? Yeah, just killed Klebsiella. He's found variability. He's found some lines that produce and some lines that don't. We haven't gone back and checked to see are those 
are, are we at suboptimal dosing? Do those lines not have TLR ligands? Do they not express TLR ligands in vitro? There's a lot of work to be done there. But there is intriguing evidence. And, and one of the surprises with the amiquimod, um, basal cell carcinoma, you know, and you make the TLR ligand amiquimod and you rub it on the carcinoma and then it gets really inflamed and goes away. And again, that was one of the surprises there was the tumors were actually expressing some of the inflammatory mediators in addition to just the innate cells. So I don't think, I think I talked all around your question. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah. That means he's got a lot more to say. All right. Um, I do, I, oh, I apologize. Yes, sir. No. We got time, Brent. Just because my lunch is sitting here waiting, you just take your time. Well, from one slow speaker to another. Um, there we go. Uh, no, so in the context of a quick question, do you have any sense that radiation-induced gut leakage would elicit that same protective <clears throat> Radiation-induced what? Gut leakage? Oh, gosh, wow, interesting. I, I, not a clue. I, it very well could. You know, we're, we're, we're playing with this idea um, very, very oddly got down this path of looking at Crohn's. And actually, the first publication I did with the company was in Crohn's and, and Crohn's like colitis. And in that case, what we found, we certainly believed that we were diff create, uh, restoring macrophage function and eliminating the infiltrating E. coli and resolving the inflammation in those models. Now, if you do a radiation and you get it leakage, I think very, it could, Brent. It's interesting. I don't know. In response to Brent's in response to Brent's comment, my medical students who use Echo to listen to lectures at home in their pajamas instead of coming to class do tell me that if they play me back at one point one point eight x, that I sound normal. <laughs> so everyone at home replay at one point eight x, okay? Yes, Christine. It's interesting. Some of the work coming out of MD Anderson with Jen Wargo is looking mm -hmm. at the microbiome signature. Right? Yeah. So depending on what bacteria a patient has in their gut, yep. the response to the therapy is different. Yes. So I'm wondering, given your work, did you look at the microbiome of the gut? Like, do you think that maybe it's you know, it, it, again, it certainly could be. And um, it's, <coughs> before Jen went to MD Anderson, we actually went down and talked with her um, briefly. And unfortunately, unfortunately for her, you know, she did much better. She went down to MD Anderson. <laughs> um, it's just beyond what we can do right now. But but we were so compelled that we bought when we bought these mice from Taconic, where they have this. And I don't know how they do it, but essentially they have the ability to say, this room has pretty much anything any colony would have except. And so, so you expect that the microbiome is fairly replete, fairly normal, in air quotes, and yet the absence of the Klebsiella knocked out the response to killed Klebsiella, and it's so beautifully restored. That led us to pursue that and, and worry less about what else is going on in the gut, but it's not to say it's not really important. Yeah. And, and again, I, I didn't show the data. We've, we've done experiments with Q combining this with checkpoint inhibitors and seen greater efficacy, not quite synergy, depending on how you define it. But, you know, there's certainly an additive effect. Um, so 
modulating that bacteria, modulating the immune system with the killed bacteria in this model doesn't, at least it doesn't impede checkpoint blockade, but it may not enhance it. Yes, sir. You're back. Any clue of what the memory is? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. You know, we've, 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 you can imagine that a company that wants to take a killed bacteria product and, commercial, and commercialize it has to be thinking a lot about quality control and, and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, they're, they're keen to understand the active ingredients, if you will. Because right now what I'm showing you and where we are is killed whole bacteria, proprietary method of killing and prepping, but, you know, it's killed bacteria. Um, we don't yet know. And like I said, one of the interesting things is we can see efficacy with gram positives or gram negatives. It doesn't seem to be LPS. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's, we don't know, Steve. We've, and we've, we've thought about, you know, we, we tried some initial experiments. Uh, the, this time the we is they. They tried some initial experiments where you can buy reporter lines with TLR agonists. And they can say, wow, you know, I, we know this bacteria really lights up cells expressing TLR6 or TLR9, whatever. But it doesn't really tell us what's going on. And I think we're some ways from understanding that. One thing I can tell you is if you, if you, well, okay, I can't tell you. <laughs> Chuck. Very nice work. Hey. Just go one step further since you're working with the whole organism. Yeah. Have you considered just taking these preparations of purified TLR agonists, depositing them in the same yeah. way, and seeing if you can elicit a response? We have, we have certainly thought about it. <laughs> Chuck asked if we thought about putting TLR agonists. We, you know, we have, and we can't, we can't, in a very, very limited experiment, we don't see it. And, you know, what we don't know, of course, what we don't know is, does this require phagocytosis of bacterial debris? Does this, is it all on the surface? You know, we don't know yet. Um, I will, I can say where the company's going right now is to start doing subcellular fractionation experiments and, you know, in other words, deconstruct it. What can we take away and still see efficacy? That's, that's the current approach. All right, thank you all very much. Good, thank you.